Greetings and welcome to your Afrofuturist podcast. My name is Ahmed Best. Thank you for joining me. Maynard Holliday was the senior tech advisor for uh, the Defense Department and Pentagon for the Obama administration. And I met him doing uh, this event that I hosted called Afrofuturist Science Speed Dating with the Science and Entertainment Exchange. And Maynard had such a, an incredible energy as well as these really cool cufflinks that said 44. And uh, I really appreciate Maynard for a couple of reasons. Number one, Barack Obama is probably my favorite president of all time. And uh, I was such in awe of the fact that Maynard came from that administration and, and he was one of those people that I heard about who uh, worked in the Obama administration uh, that really spoke to the diversity of the Obama administration. And I had always heard about these rumors that the Obama administration was the most diverse in presidential history. And in this podcast, I talked to Maynard about it and he confirms that. He confirms how um, the Obama administration really made it a point to put into practice diversity and inclusion in a very tangible way, in a very visceral way. We jump right into the conversation talking about artificial intelligence and uh, kind of picking up from Philip Butler uh, in the last podcast talking about artificial intelligence and why we need more people of diverse backgrounds in artificial intelligence based on the ideas of how we look at things and how the, the technology of looking at things developed over the years and why brown people, black people, people who weren't in the majority at the time weren't considered and how those algorithms carry forward back from the days of Kodak and, and you know, developing a light sourced photorealistic uh, capture device up until digital capture. Now, we also talk about what's happening in the world as far as the COVID-19 uh, epidemic that's happening in in uh, the United States at the moment and around the world. And at this moment, we're all kind of self-quarantining and we're trying to flatten the curve uh, of the spread of COVID-19 in the United States of America. But Maynard was one of uh, several mechanical engineers and roboticists that aided in um, assessing the grounds underneath Chernobyl. And he has very firsthand knowledge because he worked with Ukrainians um, about the Chernobyl uh, event. And I wanted to talk to him specifically about how um, scientists, roboticists, nuclear physicists, they learned from Chernobyl and, and how we could, in this epidemic that we're in right now, learn from their mistakes. So I talked to Maynard about that and I talked to him about really finding a way to aggregate information in creative ways in order to get as much information as we need when we're not being fed this information from um, the leadership. So um, please enjoy Maynard Holiday. I enjoyed talking to him. He is such a wonderful resource, and uh, we're definitely going to do a part two with Maynard because he has such uh, a wealth of information from his days as, you know, being a comic book kid and wanting to be an astronaut to Carnegie Mellon to working in, um, in the nuclear priesthood, as um, he calls it. 
all the way through and to where he is at the present with the Rand Corporation up in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area. So please enjoy Mr. Maynard Holiday. Mr. Maynard Holiday, thank you for coming back onto the Afrofuturist podcast. Really appreciate you being here, uh, especially in in these times um, where it seems as if things like automation, artificial intelligence, remote uh, meeting, all of those things have kind of kind of become the new normal now, you know, since we're we're in this, you know, post COVID-19 discovery world. Um, but I, I wanted to talk to you uh, first about the artificial intelligence piece. And um, you've talked about the different types of artificial intelligence and why they're important in the space. And I've been having a lot of conversations on artificial intelligence programming and bias. Right. And um, a lot of engineers and people who who... who think about artificial intelligence don't really understand how unconscious bias finds its way into the code. And when we're talking about autonomous vehicles, of which I have one, you know, a partially autonomous vehicle, we don't talk about how that bias is already inherent in the code in an autonomous vehicle. And that's probably one of the most obvious places you can see it. Right. So if you wouldn't mind, run that down for us. Let us know what that is. Sure. And so uh, good to be back with you, my brother. I appreciate the time. Um, so in the history of, uh, you know, autonomy and, and uh, development, you know, there's a, a, a seminal, uh, you know, piece of uh, uh, research around um, photos where the Kodak company um, developed a, a standard, you know, picture by which to grade, you know, optics and film. Mm. And, and that, uh, and, and the name escapes me, you know, we can, uh, you know, check it out later and, and, and put it in the, in the notes, but the bottom line, which is a, you know, you can almost draw a straight line between this kind of um, uh, unconscious bias uh, in, in this early technological development uh, to what you're seeing in AI. And, and this standard photo was based on, you know, white skin. Hmm. And uh, as, uh, um, you know, the use of photography, you know, expanded, um, and, you know, there were people of color being photographed, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the film and the optics were, were off because they had been calibrated to, to white skin. And so you can draw the straight line almost to what you see in AI, where um, the, standard, um, the standards by which, uh, you know, faces are recognized and um, other objects are you know, in a scene or, or recognized are from a um, perspective of the engineers who have uh, coded, uh, you know, the algorithms. And, and it's their, you know, narrow perspective that gets 
promulgated in these algorithms. And so, uh, you know, what you see is, um, you know, a lack of uh, recognition of, uh, of, you know, people, uh, you know, with darker skin. Um, and, you know, there are lots of studies, you know, that we can reference uh, about, um, you know, these algorithms uh, identifying, you know, you and I as the same people, you know, and just people with, you know, darker skin as the same people, but are able to discern, uh, you know, white women and, and white men, you know, very finely, but, but not, uh, you know, people who look like you and I. And so um, the fundamental problem is that the teams that are developing these technologies are, are not diverse enough to um, encode um, the, uh, you know, functionality that, you know, can discern, you know, a wide spectrum of, uh, of color and, and other features. So when you're saying that the, the diversity problem in the, the rooms when it comes to programming this artificial intelligence is the problem, if we're going off of a light detected idea of how to see things, um, how does diversity in the programming rooms change that idea? How do we, oh. as black folk, go, it has to be something else other than the way Kodak deciphered photons? Right. Um, and, and so it gets to the testing regime, you know, how you test your code and against what examples. Right. And so, um, you know, with us being in the room and, you know, in fact, you know, any diverse population, you know, Asian, uh, you know, Native American, whatever, you want to see yourself and your people represented in how the code um, responds. And so the test cases that you develop, the scenarios that you develop would include, um, you know, people in situations that are familiar to you and your community. Hmm. What are some ideas on how these rooms could work in a way where um, we're not dealing with a photographic based idea of what can be seen? Like, what is a way we can change the thinking in the room to go, maybe it's not light. Maybe it's not photons that we're trying to recreate. Because these vehicles, they're, they're transforming light information into digital information, right? Right. So all they need is like another input of digital information. Yeah, and they are redundant now. You know, they have ultrasonic sensors, they have radars, and they have, have LIDARs. And those, those are all uh, redundant. Right. Um, sensors depending on you know the ambient environment you know each are you know perform better in in one you know weather condition or another um and so the people who develop these need to be cognizant of all of the types of uh you know pedestrians and uh you know people in a particular ambient scene that are going to need to be detected and measured those sensors performance against, um, you know, those, uh, you know, diverse skin tones, you know, hairstyles and, and so on and so forth. So, um, 
And, you know, for us to be in the room, we can dictate that uh, requirement and say, have you looked at, you know, the brother with dreads over here or the, you know, the young, uh, you know, woman of color who has, you know, a, a big, you know, big hair like my daughters do um, and uh, and make sure, you know, that that's in the taxonomy as a, uh, as a, you know, as a person. Um, right. And so it, it, that it doesn't crash the algorithm or, or it becomes, uh, you know, unnoticed. Yeah, I'm I'm drawing parallels between what's going on with artificial intelligence and what's happening in the entertainment industry. And what's killing me right now is everybody talks about this show Watchmen, right? And mm-hmm. how Watchmen was such great television. And it was. It was probably one of the best shows I've ever seen. Um, and one of the reasons why is because it started with an event that most people in American history don't know about. It started with the massacre in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And it started with uh, Black Wall Street. So when Watchmen came on and I was like, oh, we're starting in Black Wall Street, I was taken aback. I was shocked. I had since had a couple of conversations with people who know the showrunner and who know people in the writer's room. And Mm -hmm. from the showrunner's point of view... um. Damon Lindelof, he decided mm-hmm. to kind of take a back seat and let the black folk in the room tell him the story, right? Mm. And that okay. enriched the story of The Watchmen because mm. he had never really known about Black Wall Street in as visceral and as emotional a way as the black people in the writer's room did. And that immediately set off this whole new idea of how to reinterpret this graphic novel, right? Mm -hmm. And it took Damon Lindelof to go, you know what, here's something that I don't know. And it Mm kind of goes along the lines of the problem with what we talk about when it comes to diversity and inclusion. We don't have a talent problem. We We have a pipeline problem, right? We have an access problem. How do we get the access, how do we change the gatekeepers so these ideas that we're coming up with get into the room? Yeah, so that's, uh, uh, you know, a, a salient salient point. And I'd, I'd push back a little bit and say not so much a pipeline problem because, you know, we are out there. Right. You know, I have a whole, I have a whole peer group, uh, you know, who, who grew up with, uh, with me, you know, career-wise, you know, went to the same, you know, elite schools, um, and are still, you know, marginalized and are, and are on the outside. Right. Right. Um, and, and so point. to your point, um, you know, there's a rising cadre of, you know, black entrepreneurs who are, um, you know, now being able to attract, you know, capital to, uh, you know, develop their, their ideas and, and companies. Um, and then, you know, harken back, uh, you know, to the Obama administration, you know, that was the most diverse in history that empowered, you know, a lot of us to, um, um, uh, uh, you know, make tremendous contributions and to network with one another. And so right. I continue to benefit from, from that network um, that has, you know, continued to open doors for, for me and, and, and my extended network. But to, to get into the, um, uh, uh, you know, gatekeeper roles, I, 
some of these tech giants out here in the valley, uh, you know, cherry picked some of President Obama's uh, uh, people in uh, the Office of Personnel Management. And so, um, you know, I, I know who they are. And, uh, and if they're listening, they know who they are. Right. But, you know, they, they are in, uh, you know, in places like Apple, Google, Facebook, Amazon, and, uh, and are trying to do their best to, uh, you know, diversify um, the, uh, the talent pool that these, these companies draw from. Um, just, just as an, just an existential question, what do you think it is? Like, what do you think the reason we have a gatekeeper problem that we can't, uh, I'm not saying that we can't, but we find it so much more challenging to be able to be the people who open the doors. What is it? I mean, you're in Silicon Valley, been there for such a long time. And there are a lot of black founders. Let's be 100% honest. Mm -hmm. They are not getting the attention, the funding, the VC um, nods, the incubator spots. What is it? I mean, I, I, I hate to boil it down to straight up racism, but what is it? These ideas are great. Right. Um, so my, I, I can speak from my experience and then my extended network experience. And it's it, it, it's about uh, stereotypes when you, you know, walk into a, to a room, uh, you know, whether, uh, you know, people have a, a set of stereotypes about about you and, uh, you know, before you even open open your mouth um, and the fact that you're not in the same, you know, networks, um, even though you may have been a classmate of somebody at some of these elite institutions, um, you are not in the, the same networks and, and being asked to, uh, to join founding teams um, and, uh, and be, uh, you know, in on, on the ground floor of, of some of these, these enterprises. There are exceptions, and, and I know some of those exceptions. Um, and so, you know, I think it's a it, it, it's a, a network effect. Uh, don't have the same contact base. Um, that's changing, though. Uh, you know, with the advent of social media and, and LinkedIn, and um, you know, the uh, Obama alumni network, um, people are 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 being able to to break down some of these these barriers and get uh, uh, you know noticed you know, put on founding teams and, uh, and then, you know, get VC funding. So I think, um, you know, COVID-19 aside, um, the, the, the track is positive, um, you know, for minority founders, you know, going forward. That's great to hear. Um, that is really, really great to hear. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about your background because um, it's, so incredibly interesting. Um, you studied uh, mechanical engineering and robotics, and That's then right. and then you ended up in the Ukraine building a robot to investigate Chernobyl. So, can you um, hook us up with timeline? Because sure. that is to me like you don't hear about very many people, especially black people who end up in the Ukraine helping 
the Ukrainians investigate Chernobyl with a robot that you helped design. So can you take us from, was it Carnegie Mellon? You went to Carnegie right. Mellon? Take us from Carnegie Mellon to the Ukraine. How'd that happen? Right. <laughs> yeah, and I have an update for you since you and I talked. And so I'll, I'll plug that in at the end of the yes, story. Yes, please. Yeah. So I was at Carnegie Mellon in the early 80s. Um, and uh, and through my island happened. And um, one of my uh, uh, professors uh, was asked to, um, to help design robots for Three Mile Island to uh, assess what had happened there. Um, so by that time I had graduated and then come out to the Lawrence Livermore lab in California. And uh, so fast forward to the um, early nineties when they like to say peace broke out and the, the Soviet Union disintegrated. Um, Chernobyl, uh, the Chernobyl accident happened in, uh, in 1986, April 86. And, um, and some say that was the first domino to fall in the uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union because they lied to their people. And um, uh, it became this worldwide, uh, uh, you know, radiological disaster. So before um, you go on a little bit about being in the Ukraine, Tell everybody for who um, isn't in, into um, people who study nuclear energy what Lawrence Livermore was and does. Oh it, yeah, so Lawrence Livermore is part of the uh, what is affectionately known as the nuclear priesthood. It's a uh, one of three of the U.S.'s nuclear weapons labs. It's the sister lab to Los Alamos uh, National Lab, which is the uh, inventor of uh, our atomic bomb. And so it's a sister laboratory here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And um, it uh, and so that was my first job coming out of Carnegie Mellon was to, to work there in the nuclear test program and then moving on to uh, uh, robotics um, for um, our nuclear cleanup. So that's uh, that's Lawrence Livermore Lab. And so the uh, the other. Uh, nuclear weapons lab is uh, Sandia National Lab, which I, I'm also an alumni of, um, and that does the arming, firing, and fusing for nuclear weapons, as well as other uh, national defense uh, missions. So, so that's the the nuclear priesthood, if you will. Um, and uh, and so, as I said, peace broke out in the early '90s. The Soviet Union disintegrates. Ukraine becomes a newly independent state. They ship all their nuclear weapons back to Russia and pivot to the West uh, for uh, assistance. And um, Senators uh, Sam Nunn and Richard Lugar, Republican and a, a, a Democrat, uh, come up with a program uh, called the Cooperative Threat Reduction Program to um, essentially win the peace. Uh, since we had spent, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars you know, deterring the Russians, um, they made the, the very wise decision to um, invest in winning the peace by keeping their former weapon scientists gainfully employed um, by their counterparts in the West, like myself, uh, working on projects of mutual interest. So in 1994, I started traveling to uh, Ukraine to engage their weapon scientists who had designed the um, guidance and control systems for their ballistic missile force in projects of mutual interest because we did not want them to go and work at the time for the rogue regimes uh, back then, you know, North Korea, Iran, Iraq, 
um, Libya. And, uh, and so our mission was to figure out what we could work on together, pay their salaries as well as pay for the project. So we, I landed in Ukraine or Kiev, the capital, um, in 94, and we asked them what they wanted to work on. And this is the, uh, the institute that built the guides and control systems you know, for the ballistic missile force. And they said Chernobyl. They said, we need help at Chernobyl. Um, we need to understand what is going on in uh, the, the belly, uh, essentially the basement under the reactor that exploded. You know, they, they thought um, that a China syndrome was still occurring and that's when nuclear fuel um, and, and material continues um, to, uh, to burn. And they thought, you know, the reason it's called the China syndrome is because they think it goes through the Earth's core and through the mantle and all the way to China. Um, and so they thought that was happening. They thought there could be a secondary collapse of the structure that was hastily built after the accident. And I would refer our listeners to the uh, Chernobyl HBO series, which was excellent, that talked about, you know, the events leading up to and what happened right after the accident, filled out uh, a, a lot of, uh, um, you know, gaps for me. And so in 94, as I said, um, we went there and uh, they said, we need help at Chernobyl. I came back to the US and, and formed a uh, uh, multi-agency, multi uh, multi, uh, uh, company and university team to build a, a radiation-hardened mobile vehicle to explore the uh, basement of Chernobyl. So you guys built this robot and did you build it here in the United States or did you build it in the Ukraine? No, no. So what we did was uh, after I formed the team, I came back, you know, and I, I, I talked to, so this is where Carnegie Mellon comes back in. Um, by that time, uh, the professor who had helped uh, Westinghouse characterize what happened at Three Mile Island had formed a, uh, a robotics company called Red Zone that specialized in hazardous robot development. And, um, and so I reached out and contacted them uh, because they had done uh, the robots for Three Mile Island. And so they became my, what we call a prime contractor to uh, um, design and build um, uh, what we eventually sent to Chernobyl. But we also had NASA involved because they wanted that terrestrial analog for interplanetary environment for you know future Mars missions. And so they wanted to put instrumentation on this robot because it, uh, you know, Chernobyl was the most hazardous environment on Earth. Um, and, uh, and we got, uh, and this will take some listeners back, uh, Silicon Graphics, uh, which was the company that built really high performance computers for uh, graphics. And Hollywood, you know, was a big customer. And, you know, they did all the special effects for Hollywood. And, um, um, and, and so they were going to do the visualization of the vision system that we designed. And, um, and then we had, you know, different university partners who were um, interested in, in different payloads. So we, um, yeah, put that, uh, that US team together 
And the robot was actually built in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania at, at Red Zone. And was it successful when you sent it to the Ukraine? Um, so it, it, there's a geopolitical question here. Um, so the Ukrainians, uh, once they got the robot in, in 99, in the fall of 99, um, it got delivered and uh, they subsequently said, and this was you know, completely their prerogative, that the information that the robot was um, collecting was a Ukrainian state secret. And, uh, and so we never got um, any direct feedback of what uh, the robot was um, discovering as far as, you know, what the radiation levels were, what the, um, uh, how it was able to access the rooms that it was designed to access. Um, the only way that we knew that uh, it may have been useful is that the Red Zone company would periodically get calls for system passwords right. <laughs> from, from uh, the staff uh, that was operating it. And so, uh, so this was over 20 years ago. Don't know, uh, you know, whether it's still operating. I doubt it. But I have an update for you, Ahmed. Yes, uh, you heard it here uh, first. Yeah. So, just uh, you know, since you and I last talked, uh -huh. um, and and this is a, uh, a, you know, a testament to our interconnected world. So I got a message. Uh, so this is two weeks ago now, over LinkedIn, from one of the engineers at Chernobyl, who I worked with, who uh, helped us assess the situation. And he reached out to me and said, you know, Maynard, our work is still not done. We need more robots to help dismantle uh, Chernobyl. Because what has happened in that 20 years since we delivered our robot is the European Union has, you know, along with help from the US, put a, uh, a, a large, essentially hangar yeah. over unit four. 100 year uh, shed. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, you know, hundreds of millions of dollar project that uh, got completed, uh, you know, I guess about almost two years ago now. So there's this huge, you know, essentially hangar over unit four. But what remains to be done is the dismantlement of unit four. And so they've got these overhead cranes um, that they'll put, you know, in what we call end effectors on the end of to dismantle um, the reactor. And so they need help with designing those end effectors and then, uh, you know, to take, a, take off the roof of Chernobyl. And then they need help with uh, robots to go in to essentially size, reduce the uh, reactor fuel and the materials, what they call corium, uh, which is the combination of the reactor fuel, the concrete and the, um, the lead that they drop to, to mitigate the reaction. So they, they've called that over the years corium. And so um, it's gotta be size reduced because what they wanna do is take all that material out of this big shelter and, and bury it. 
Um, and so I was, uh, you know, kind of gobsmacked by, you know, getting this message 20 years after the fact. And so I am presently right now uh, trying to uh, uh, identify a new team that has the latest in uh, robotic uh, technology and capability, as well as identify some funding to help my uh, Ukrainian uh, brothers out um, because they uh, they reached out to me and you know sent me video of you know and animation of what's going on and so uh, that is uh, uh, you know the the latest so I'm I'm excited to you know be reengaged because this is you know one of the world's uh, you know almost hazardous places and you know a great place to you know develop technology for uh you know god forbid a you know a, another accident that yeah uh, could you know happen anywhere in the world well this is actually this is actually quite perfect because and and one of the reasons why i was excited to talk to you again today is because of what happened since the last time we talked right and um the company that you work for rand put out a report um, about a global pandemic that could really cripple the world and the United States specifically because we weren't prepared for it, right? And this administration didn't pick up on that. And I think that report came out in 2012. I'm not sure. But um, I remember when that came out because subsequently, like, people started coming out and saying the same thing. Bill Gates said the same thing. Right. Um, and, uh, there were a bunch of reports during, towards the end of the Obama administration, um, because he had to deal with SARS and Ebola and put together the global pandemic, uh, response team at the white house because of all right. of these reports coming out and those response teams at the white house have since been disassembled by this administration. Um, but I think the reason why I feel like it's important to talk to you and someone with your skill set, especially since you dealt with Chernobyl 20 years ago and Chernobyl now. And what I see personally, this COVID-19 scare is like Chernobyl. And we're going to be dealing with this in 20 years as well. We're going to have to have this idea of what Chernobyl now and Chernobyl then look like. So it's like a COVID-19 now, COVID-19 20, 20 years from now. And the response team that you put together to help investigate the, the, the supposed or the speculated China syndrome at Chernobyl came up with a solution to get information and deal with that, right? What, with your skill set, what do you think we as a globe need to do to put together a response? to what's going on right now? So uh, first and foremost, you know, listen to the scientists. Um, and, uh, you know, I have some expertise, uh, again, based on my, my work uh, before I joined the uh, administration, uh, when I was at the Sandia National Lab, we were tasked by uh, the State Department to look at how to verify um, chemical and biological weapons treaties 
without a ver you know formal verification regime like you know the nuclear weapons treaties have. So I uh, postulated um, that we could use social media to scan um, all the public uh, Twitter, Facebook, and you know around the world using natural language processing to uh, translate uh, you know Chinese, Russian, Arabic postings so that we could um, see what the internet is saying about the future. Um, and so there was a, a company still in existence called Recorded Future that that was its mission. So it would essentially use text analysis to analyze what um, uh, people were saying. If a country was trying to hide the development of a chemical or biological weapon um, and had an accident, we could determine through social media posts um, if uh, there was an animal die-off, for example, you know, in the local area, or if uh, people were calling in sick, um, talking about illness. And so one of the things that we, we did um, just to test our hypothesis was we looked at H1N1, we looked at MERS, um, and we looked at uh, a spinal meningitis outbreak here in the U.S. that happened at the Boston Compounding Pharmacy that, um, you know, had, you know, poor, um, you know, quality control and, and, and allowed, you know, batches of medicine to get tainted. And by analyzing social media, we were able to detect these patient clusters before the CDC did, because people were talking about it on Facebook, about whether they had gotten a bad batch and were looking for support groups. We also looked at uh, a pig die-off in uh, Shanghai, China, where farmers were throwing their dead pigs into this river. Um, and, uh, you know, whether that was the result of some leak at a clandestine chemical or biological weapons plant. And so these give you indicators of things that are either going on organically. And so that was the case with you know, the Boston compounding pharmacy. And it turned out for um, the, uh, uh, you know, the pig die off that it was just a swine flu going around. Um, um, and so if we had used some of these same techniques, uh, you know, by looking at Chinese social media and, and the press and seeing them announcing closing of you know these open air animal markets, which is where they think the virus emanated you know, with, from in Wuhan. Uh, you know this temporal analytics approach, where you're able to discern what the internet is saying about the future um, by using text analytics. When people say, "Hey, I'm I'm sick," or um, uh, governments are closing down open air animal markets uh, because of, you know, an outbreak of, of something, um, you're able to then proactively take steps to, um, you know, quarantine an area or stop travel, or you know, that can give you an indicator as to um, the potential, uh, you know, spread of uh, uh, 
you know, an unknown, you know, pathogen or, or, or virus. And so yeah. if we're able to use that, those techniques and have epidemiologists start mapping, you know, the potential spread, we could have, uh, you know, I wouldn't say stop, but mitigate, um, you know, the initial spread by, you know, stopping passengers, uh, you know, coming in, uh, you know, from China and specifically Wuhan, you know, much, much sooner. Um, and, uh, and so that wasn't done. And, and we, you know, are, are weeks behind, behind the curve uh, because of it. So um, drawing from the Chernobyl um, analysis and analogy, uh, the Russian government didn't disseminate the right information or pay attention to the signs um, when it was duly noted and necessary. They didn't listen to the scientists. They let politics get in the way of science. And, uh, yeah. And I yeah. feel like that's kind of happening now. Like we're letting politics get in the way of science. And because of that, we're playing catch up. And it's very difficult, and I know from from where I stand, and I'm pretty science literate, it's very difficult to know who to listen to, what to believe, and what to do. So if you were going to do some temporal analytics now about where we are now, what would be the things that you'd be listening for? Um, I would be listening for, uh, you know, looking at some... And again, I think, you know, the administration is playing catch up, but to their credit now, they are, you know, letting the scientists at least speak, uh, you know, in on, on the networks and in public forums. And I would, you know, look at the, the CDC website. I'd look at, you know, Johns Hopkins um, site that's, that's tracking this, um, you know, cases worldwide. Um, so that's a source um, that I trust. Um, and so what the, the Soviets tried to do was, um, you know, at first, you know, lie to their people um, and not evacuate the city right next to Chernobyl, which was Pripyat. Um, and, uh, um, and then also, you know, try to lie to the international community, which actually detected the radiation cloud and, and called them on it and said, you know, what happened? You know, you're not supposed to be nuclear testing anymore, but there's, there's something going on around Chernobyl. Um, so, so please, you know, tell us. Um, and so in our case, um, uh, you know, we, we have to, as I said at the beginning of our, our interview, listen to the scientists um, and, uh, and also have, uh, have, have faith in, in the multiple, uh, you know, streams of information um, that, uh, that, that we can get that uh, that you trust, and as I said, you know, Johns Hopkins is a source, Rand is a source, um, uh, the CDC is is a source, um, and um, and so I, you know, and you know your local officials. So you and I both are in California, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm in the Bay Area where you know we were given an order, you know, a few days ago, shelter in place, you know, seven million people. Um, and, uh, you know, for the most part, you know, people are adhering to that. And, and, you know, California has always, and the Bay Area especially, has always leaned forward with respect to, you know, public health pronouncements. And so that's another source as well. 
is, you know, to see what, uh, you know, the local governments in the Bay Area are doing. Uh, and, you know, you'll see other cities, uh, you know, follow suit. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm glad you are. We're talking about um, local and 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 federal politics and the difference between them, because you coming from the private sector went into um, government under the Obama administration. And um, I would love to talk about our hero and greatest president in American history, Barack Obama, and why you decided to jump back into government and join his administration. Oh, well, I mean, that's easy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> how, how many times are, are you know, you're going to get to serve an African-American president in your career? Right. And, and so when asked, um, I didn't hesitate. I, I just had to get permission from my wife, <laughs> as I call it, the kitchen pass to, uh, to leave her, you know, here in California and, and moved to Maryland. But, um, yeah, that was, uh, yeah, it was an instant yes for, for me, but, you know, I had to take into, uh, account how it was impacting my family. And, you know, I thank my, uh, my gracious wife for letting me, uh, you know, have the opportunity to do that. So it was the honor and privilege of, uh, of my career. So tell us about the Pentagon in the time of Barack Obama, especially at the time where Silicon Valley became the center of the universe for technology. How was it working in the Pentagon at at the same time as coming from Silicon Valley? Right. So, again, uh, you know, kudos to, you know, President Obama's choices. so I, I worked for the longest serving undersecretary of defense for acquisition. And this is the, uh, the number three role in the Pentagon who has the, uh, the biggest acquisition budget on the planet. And so at the time when I served him as a senior technical advisor, 450 billion. Um, and so that was, you know, acquire aircraft carriers, fighter jets, submarines, and then all the research. And so to President Obama's credit, he uh, named a, uh, a PhD physicist named Ash Carter to be his Secretary of Defense at the end of his um, second term. And he um, had, and had been thinking about this all along, about how the rate of innovation in the private sector in a lot of key areas was moving much faster than uh, the government. And, and in key areas like uh, robotics, cybersecurity, synthetic biology, uh, microsatellites, drones. And so he tasked um, uh, my office uh, and, and my boss, Frank Kendall, who then um, tasked me to set up a innovation unit in Silicon Valley uh, called the Defense Innovation Unit Experimental to essentially uh, again, in technical terms, impedance match the rate of innovation in those areas that I just listed with Pentagon problem sets. And so the, um, the idea was to place um, representatives from each of the military services uh, in Silicon Valley to uh, do what we call technology horizon scan for potentially disruptive technologies in areas that 
the Department of Defense needed to address, um, you know, their technical gaps. And so, um, so they they took the model of uh, essentially uh, of a an anti VC, an anti venture capital view, in the sense that, you know, when I talk to my colleagues, I ask them. Uh, what would bring you in to work with us, you know, being the Pentagon. And they said, you know, non-dilutive capital, meaning uh, no, you know, equity dilution uh, for the founders. Hmm. So that's a, that's a, um, you know, the, the term in Silicon Valley for VCs is vulture capitalists, yeah, <laughs> right? Because they're, they're diluting you every round they, they fund you. And right. so, um, so a major attractant is non-dilutive capital, um, and so that um, helps uh, you know companies, uh, and it helps you know the Department of Defense address you know these urgent technical gaps, and um, and so we were able to uh, set up this Defense Innovation Unit with that as the top attractant, also uh, the ability to. Um, uh, jump companies to the front of the line with the patent and trademark office if their technology was meeting an acute national security need, access to, um, uh, you know, the virtual and physical test ranges that the uh, Defense Department operates. And, and then finally, you know, introduction to the tier one defense contractors of the world, the, uh, you know, Lockheed's, Boeing's, Northrop's of the world who might want to license and or acquire, you know, outright, you know, your company or, and, um, and so that provides a, a monetization and, and off ramp uh, for companies. And so in the summer of 2015, um, that's what I did is I helped uh, stand that defense innovation unit experimental up actually right near Google in Mountain View uh, near the NASA Moffett Field uh, installation. And so that's one of my proudest achievements because it survived contact with the, the Trump administration and uh, it continues to uh, thrive to this day and they've, they've dropped the uh, experimental and it's now just the defense uh, innovation unit. And so, um, uh, like I said, it was, you know, one of the, the honors and uh, privileges of my career to, you know, be able to be involved in that. But that goes back to the top uh, of the chain to, to leadership. And, you know, President Obama had the uh, uh, foresight to, uh, to nominate and uh, somebody in the Secretary of Defense's role who had that vision um, and, and recognized for us, meaning the U.S. to maintain its technological superiority, it, it needed to tap into the valley um, to, uh, to, you know, get those technologies. So, um, uh, so as personnel moved around his administration or left the administration, um, he would always, you know, his office of personnel management would always strive to um, try to find qualified, you know, diverse candidates to fill those roles. And um, I was, uh, you know, the beneficiary of that outreach. And, uh, and, then, and then once in the role, um, I was uh, tapped to represent the Defense Department on some of the White House's STEM diversity and inclusion efforts, which uh, 
had me cross paths with the uh, the people uh, that ran the uh, the speed dating event that you and I met at, right. which was the uh, Science and Antennas Science. Exchange. Exactly. So uh, all all serendipitous uh, and and all uh, and all good. That's fantastic. Um, let's talk about the future and where you are um, currently and, and, and some of the stuff that you're doing. So at the Rand Corporation, are you able to continue some of the work that you did um, in the Obama administration? And what are the things that looking forward we could um, continue to see with uh, what you're doing in your work? Yeah, certainly. So, um, so one of the things that a federally funded research and development center or FFRDC uh, allows uh, researchers to do is they they take a a, um, a skim, if you will, off of the uh, the budget that they get from the government to fund internal research. Hmm. And so, one of the things that I'm, as you can <laughs> already tell, passionate about is STEM diversity and inclusion. And so. One of the projects I'm working on right now is a artificial intelligence and the law project where we're looking at how to um, uh, determine uh, if uh, algorithms that we call um, high stakes algorithms are are fair and and mm. and high stakes algorithms, you know. Uh, what we call there's tool AI and and high stakes and tool AI you and I and and the listeners interact with every day so that's Siri and Alexa um, uh, and you know different uh, uh, things you know on your phone you know giving you directions uh, and then there's high stakes AI um, that uh, has life altering um, consequences and so that's this is the AI that determines you know, what your insurance rates are, whether you get a mortgage. And then the social social justice domain, it's um, your, you know, whether you get paroled, how long your sentence is. Um, uh, and then in in what we call kinetic, uh, you know, in your autonomous vehicle, it's, uh, you know, de deciding, um, uh, you know, the objects in front of you, whether to stop and to, um, you know, not that's making you know any kind of racial classification, but it it's AI that's making decisions on a, you know, a multi-ton vehicle moving at speed, you know, in down the road, and so yeah, um, and so uh, so I'm looking at uh, algorithmic bias um, in in high stakes AI, and this is a internally funded RAND project that I'm the uh, principal investigator on. So I'm talking to subject matter experts on algorithmic bias uh, around the world to explore, um, you know, how these algorithms, you know, are uh, developed, um, how you can make them more transparent, um, you know, what the companies that presently um, sell them uh, to different municipalities and organizations um, how they are, you know, trying to eliminate bias in them and, uh, and hopefully, you know, move the conversation forward and, uh, and make them more transparent and, and more fair, 
you know, to everyone. I'd love to dive a little bit deeper on this because I, um, I recently attended uh, a salon about um, artificial intelligence and computers that feel at the Bergruen Institute. And there were two um, scientists there. One was a, a biologist. The other one was a quantum physicist. And uh, homeostasis kept coming up in this conversation, homeostasis and the feelings, um, emotional feelings of human beings and trying to impart that onto an AI, right? And in, in the quantum world where all possibilities are possible is how they're developing this idea of creating homeostasis in um, machines, right? And as they kept talking, they kept talking about wellness. They kept talking about well-being. They kept talking about these things that, um, these things that most of the time get classified in human psychology, right? And as I was listening, uh, uh, of course, me being one of maybe three black people in the room, as I was <laughs> listening, um a huge uh, wave of concern came over me because I wanted to know what their idea of well-being is and who is developing the ethics for what homeostasis is in um, the quantum computing world. Because, you know, if we're talking about 17th century America, Whites thought that black slaves dancing in the slave quarters, that they were happy and that was right. positive well-being. So mm -hmm. if we only have a certain group thinking about homeostasis and well-being and ethics from their point of view, we're going to have a problem with artificial intelligence. We're going to have a yep, really, absolutely. really big problem. So absolutely. who is defining what this stuff is? And how do we kick in the door and say, um, you guys are really, and it, and, it, and it's kind of going in the same direction as the autonomous vehicle question. Like mm -hmm. you guys are, you're creating a problem here and you, mm -hmm. you don't even see it. Yeah. So, so I would point to a group that I, you know, I belong to now called Black in AI. And uh, it, it's uh, a group of, uh, and it's a, you know, global, you know, just not US based uh diaspora of uh, uh, people of color who are in AI and recognize this as a problem. And, you know, I'd be happy to share, you know, the, the people that I uh, talk to, uh, uh, as well as I, I am going to be talking to for my research, who are uh, at the cutting edge of, of this topic. But um, so they are, uh, you know, writing the papers, you know, the, the refereed, uh, uh, journal papers and are presenting these at uh, the AI conferences around the world, um, and uh, and they are employed by some of the top uh, you know companies that are employing AI. So increasingly, you know, as I said, you know, kind of uh, post COVID nineteen, you know, you're going to see these uh, emerging voices um, and. And I'm, I'm happy to, to, to list them for your listeners in, you know, whatever references that you put out, uh, are, you know, around this podcast. Absolutely. Absolutely. How important is storytelling to what you do? Because you did mention the Science and Entertainment Exchange and you've been working with them for a while on, on the stuff that they do. 
and um, me being somebody who does that for a living, I, I'm I'm mm-hmm. constantly um, amazed and impressed every time I hear a story that shifts my perception and shifts my thinking on things. How important is storytelling to um, the work that you're doing? Yeah, so it's, uh, well, you know, I have my own personal story about, you know, how storytelling affected me as a, as a young boy uh, growing up uh, and not seeing anybody that looked like me doing what I wanted to do, um, and which was, uh, uh, you know, be an astronaut, right? right. And, uh, you know, when I was growing up in the uh, 70s, uh, you know, wasn't, wasn't nobody that, that looked like us. Uh, so I had to look to uh, uh, science fiction and uh, and Star Trek, you know, the original incarnation, um, and, and look at uh, uh, you know, and this will take some listeners back uh, if they're fans of the uh, original series, uh, you know, the Ultimate Computer episode with uh, uh, I think it's Richard Marshall. He had the the deep baritone voice. Yeah. He was Doc Doctor Richard Daystrom, and uh, and he was brilliant. Um, and you know the computer that he developed could run a starship by itself, you know. It, uh, and and so that made a big you know impression on me. And yeah, he was a fictional character, but you know what I wanted to. Uh, um, and then you know with the advent of the U.S. space shuttle program, they finally picked uh, you know a a astronaut um, pool that looked like the country, you know, with women you know, Asians, uh, African-Americans. Um, and, uh, and so that's how I began my academic journey was to, uh, uh, figure out how, you know, I could get qualified, uh, to, you know, eventually, you know, be picked as one. And, uh, and I think you and I've had this conversation, you know, offline, you know, I interviewed twice, you know, for that program. So my dream almost came true, but, um, uh, I'm here talking to you because it didn't. Yeah. So that's a, and that's another story altogether. <laughs> but to your earlier point about um, the science and entertainment exchange, that was one of the premise that uh, you know Obama's uh, chief technical officer, you know Megan Smith at the time, recognized that if you can tell stories with diverse characters of people who are you know in these technical roles. Um, kids of color um, and and women, if you can see it, then you can be it, you know, is the saying. And, uh, and so for these, you know, young people to be able to see, uh, you know, themselves in these, these roles of responsibility and, and technical depth, um, that goes a long way in, in helping motivate them to, uh, you know, pick the careers that uh, eventually allow them to become the real incarnation of, of what they saw when they were uh, were growing up. And so storytelling is so, so valuable. And uh, I got the opportunity to cons- consult with, uh, you know, Madam Secretary and NCIS, um, just to, you know, expose them to somebody that looks like me, who has my, you know, kind of background, so they could, they could riff off of that, and, and perhaps create some some characters of color who, you know, who have that, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, deep technical background in, in, in whatever. Um, so on that, I'm going to give you a, a totally speculative 
storytelling question. If you had the ability by yourself to put together um, something, to mechanically engineer something in a year's time, and it could change the world in a very significant way, what would it be? Ooh. Um, you know, so one of my, uh, you know, favorite heroes, uh, you know, growing up because I'm a comic head was, uh, was Iron Man. Right. Yeah. So his super, totally. superpower was his brain. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, in, uh, in robotics, you know, the, the Iron Man suit is a, is an exoskeleton. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and so there are companies right now who are, are realizing that to, to help, you know, what we call man amplify, um, you know, the strength of, of people for different tasks and also to help, uh, you know, people who are otherwise uh, challenged due to, you know, paralysis. Um, and so I would say I would try to, you know, perfect that technology um, because number one, I, I think it would, you know, uh, anytime you're helping people to, uh, you know, become more mobile, uh, you know, that's a plus. And then uh, I just think, you know, being in an Iron Man suit is <laughs> is the ultimate. Yes, so it's so one of my dreams. It's a dream. Yeah, I, I love yeah. So I'm, so I'm waiting for the, you know, the the uh, the Marvel uh, virtual reality uh, version of that. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's as close as I'm going to get in my lifetime. Yeah, totally. Maynard, where can we find you if we want to? Um, read up on what you're doing. If we want to get in contact with you, um, yes. what's, a, what's uh, a good place to look for you? Yeah. So you can uh, find me at uh, maholiday7 at gmail.com and, uh, and then uh, maynardholiday.com. My, my website, which is uh, uh, going to be refreshed, but you'll see some, some of the things I talked about uh, uh, during our interview here at, uh, at, at that website. Perfect. Well, um, just like I said before, I would love to do so much more with you and, and um, talk to you about so many things. So we're going to have to do this again. Um, Absolutely. And, and uh, thank you for all the wonderful ideas, information and, and everything that you do. I said this before uh, when we talked before, but I think somebody like you should have their own currency um, because of the 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 wealth of experience and knowledge and, and acumen that you bring to the situation. You know, really appreciate you and really appreciate you taking this time. Yeah, my pleasure. And as, you know, President Obama told us, you know, pay it forward. So pay it forward. I, 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 I'm happy to do it. Right on. Well, thank you so much, Peter. Thank you for listening to the Afrofuturist podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be a sponsor of the show, please contact me at ahmedbest at theafrofuturistpodcast.com or at ahmedbest on Twitter. If you have any ideas of any great guests that we would like to talk to on the Afrofuturist Podcast, please contact me again at ahmedbest at theafrofuturistpodcast.com or contact me on Twitter at Ahmed best. Thank you all for listening again and I'll see you next time.